Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Check out shares of Lyft. It's been a wild ride for this new stock. And even though it's well below its IPO price, the dean of valuation says it's still not worth the price it's trading at now. He will be here to explain. Plus, big banks under pressure this week as their CEOs head to the hill tomorrow and the companies gear up for their earnings later this week. But the chairwoman says investors are getting it all wrong. She will explain. We start off tonight with the market sell-off. The Dow falling nearly 200 points. The S&P 500 snapping an eight-day winning streak as trade turmoil and earnings fears royal investors. But the biggest loser today, small caps. The Russell 2000 getting hit the hardest sending the group reeling back into correction, down more than 10% from its highs back in August, leading the rest of the broader market into the sell-off this fall. So are small caps the true tell on this market? Is it still safe to buy stocks? Pete, we kick it off oh, with you. I do think it's still safe to buy stocks. I, I, I look at this. Obviously, this is one of the many metrics. Everybody's looking at different things, and I look at this. But I, you know what? I'm, I'm impressed with what I saw today out of different tech. Obviously, we see the semis getting a little bit of pressure, but they've had a great run to the upside. Also, some bounces here and there. I look at volatility and I look at liquidity. Those are the things that matter most to me. And I think we're seeing volatility has come in dramatically. We see liquidity, which I think has been generally unbelievable the first quarter. At the start of uh, April, by the way, volumes have really been very, very light. So that's something I'm keeping an eye on because I don't like what I'm seeing so far in terms of that kind of volume. We've dropped from averaging 21 million contracts a day in the options world down now to averaging about 17 million. So that's significant. So we're losing some of that volume. Not sure exactly why, but maybe it was because of the performance of the first quarter. But I don't don't think just because we are seeing this particular segment of the markets going down, I don't think that necessarily says the rest of the market's going down. Well, except that they got stuck here, right? So the, uh, the IWM, the ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 small cap yep. uh, index is down about eight and a half from its highs. It's up about 15% from uh, on the year, which is in line with the S&P. And it's also up in line with what the S&P is up off its lows, but it's not going anywhere. And so I think part of the question is, is what does it mean now that we've had this? Um, we know that, uh, you know, lower rates, it makes uh, equities look more attractive, that sort of thing. But, you know, when you think about small caps and how indebted they are, or they have the highest debt to equity relative to these other caps, it could be a kind of a problem, even though they can finance their debt cheaper. It also is reflective of the fact that we might be entering in a different economic cycle. A lot of us think that lower rates at this stage of the cycle is not particularly good. And small caps are obviously going to be most affected and, and, and at least or more vulnerable position in, 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 in economic time to kind of finance that. Right. And right? in fact, take a look at this chart before we go on. The, the debt surge that we've seen in small caps is the percentage, um, the percentage of non-earners within these indices for the Russell. Take a look at that. That's 35% of the index are non-earners. They don't make earnings. So in other words, if there is a downturn, if there's any sort of a slowdown, these guys could be most vulnerable if they can't service their debt. A lot of this debt, by the way, some more color in this chart, is due in the next few years. How are we so defining small caps, immediate. by the way? 
Uh, the, um, the, the average could, could market capitalization yeah. is $2.4 billion on the small cap index, Russell 2000, and the median is $861 million. This is why Melissa is running this show, because we need this kind of information. And, and so, but it, the irony here, of course, is as you guys talk about the debt burden, um, rates haven't been this low in, in a year. And in fact, if you look at uh, essentially where small caps have been uh, relative to the S&P, as Dan pointed out, they're more or less keeping pace. It's just really over the last six weeks when people have been most concerned about growth. What did we hear this morning? The IMF downgraded global growth. We're now at 2009 levels. We haven't been this low, uh, essentially, in 10 years. Italy went from 1% GDP down to 0.1. So, uh, and if you're going to be worried about anything happening in, in the world, to me, I would be most worried about the pigs or the southern European nations, which have been the epicenter of a lot of the banking crisis over the last decade. So um, I look at high yield. I, US, I look at U.S. leverage loan indices. Uh, I look at dollar yen. I look at other measures of risk and credit spreads. And, and I don't see any fatigue here at all. In fact, I, I know it's disturbing to look at the absolute levels of debt. But right here and now, I'm not worried about small caps telling me we've got a debt problem. So, so is it's it a growth concern in the headline. Um, so are small caps investable or no? Or do you favor large caps over small caps because of what we're seeing? Well, I, I tell you what, I, I think this underperformance on small caps relative to big caps is something that's worth buying. Um, and if anything, I've historically used small caps in the IWM as a hedge against emerging markets, which are flying high right now. Um, they often have traded together and have been highly correlated and emerging is trading better than the S&P. So I don't like to think of it as just a monolithic small cap, right? It's made up of, you know, sectors and yeah. sectors and there's value and there's lack of value in some other ones. It's interesting to me, though, because I think of the small caps as having a much more U.S. centric business, which is where you want to be, even with emerging markets improving, though our economy is still the strongest. The other thing is interesting, you know, the fourth quarter, the IWM got hit much harder I would have thought it would have rebounded harder. When we see illiquid markets and, you, you know, you have sellers into illiquid markets, things just trade terribly. I would have thought the reverse would have happened on the upside when you see markets that are stronger but thin, that you would have had better performance. Is that a tell then? I think it might be. I think the relative value is sort of interesting here. As a catch-up trade, though. Yes. Right. As a concern a for the broader trade. markets. As a hedge trade, long IWM, short right. spiders, I think is that, That's exactly what Carter Worth said to us last yeah. night, and he thinks it is a catch-up trade, except for the fact that you think about where is the Russell 2000's leverage, 17% of the weight is financials. That was one of the reasons why they got hit so hard in Q4. We know what large cap um, has done. We know what the regional banks did, they, and they continue to underperform. The XLF chart actually looks a lot like the IWM, the Russell 2000 chart. It has been stuck in a range, and I just think that is very reflective of just kind of just growth outlook. I mean, that's what I see. I also see the same thing as that the 10-year Treasury yield back at 2.5% is not bullish for growth, in my opinion. It has the potential uh -huh. to add, uh, you know, kind of money back into risk assets that like lower interest rates, but I'm not sure it's bullish for economic but can, growth. So can you be in that pair trade uh, I don't think you can. Belief, I don't like that. With the belief, I don't like it right, because you don't like financials. Yeah, but I, I just think that, like, what happened in Q1? Correlations went what? You know, Small I mean, that's what happens. Right. Would mean? you rather? So, what, sorry. Oh. What I did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I will permit this transgression <laughs> once. Really sorry. The rest of the show. Can I, can I tell you something? That's a really, no, that's that's a really a good, easy answer. A, oh, you want to say it? Because I, I, don't, I don't like Would when you ask me Would you rather small caps or financials? <laughs> much rather financials, and I'll tell you really why. Really much rather. Finer print later wow. in the show is going to be <laughs> absolutely amazing, oh and God. I'm not going to give it up. But on valuation, on a relative basis, there's, there's just absolutely um, no comparison, in my opinion. Dan likes banks here. Yeah. <laughs> Stop the God, I love hearing that. I do love hearing I'll tell you what, and not to jump in front of the financials that she's going to be talking about, but I do think we're going to see some 
loan growth. I do think we are going to see some trading revenues that weren't there in previous quarters. We had a monster first quarter. So I would think that that ought to translate fairly well to some of the financials. And for that reason, but they're specific. I think they're all a little bit different. I think it's great for probably a Morgan Stanley. I think it's great for a Goldman Sachs. I think it's great for some of those, probably uh, Bank of America. But some of the other names, maybe not so much. So it, it just depends on what we're defining as financials when we say the f- whole financial world. But in terms of technology today, I mean, yesterday we had tech closing at an all-time high. And we had Apple today trying for its longest winning streak since 2010. Didn't quite make it there. But that's supposedly one of the sectors leading us. Right. Well, t- tech certainly has been. Semis were weaker today. But if you look at Q's, that, I mean, I, I thought it was a pretty yeoman-like effort when you consider the run we've had. And in Apple's case, I think Apple is really, uh, it's more indicative of a market that people are looking for defensive mega caps and companies that, frankly, I, I don't think that Apple is over-owned here. In other words, I, I put it differently. I, I think Apple is under-owned. Um, I actually think that if you look at the fundamentals and if you look at the valuation, it's easier to play defense with Apple at this stage within Two percent of all-time highs. What are you talking like, about? I mean, yeah. first of all, this company is expected Sorry, to have different shows. No, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I, 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 the stock has rallied forty percent off the lows. You know, when this company, we started the year with an earnings pre-announcement, the stock was at a, below one hundred and sixty dollars or something like that, and the stock went down what seven, eight percent in a clip. Now it's obviously been up forty percent since then. Here's the thing: you know, they're expected to have their third annual iPhone unit decline. We're not going to know because they're not going to tell us what the units are, right? A. They're also going to have the first earnings and sales decline in a number of years. So you tell me what the, the world, what the globe looks like. You tell me what the trade situation looks like for a company like Apple. They started this 2019 off telling us that China was a problem. We have not heard anything to believe since January 2nd China was that anything's only a problem changed. because they mispriced the phones, and that hurt their well, unit we'll see. sales. You're and they corrected that. that since then. Right, and they yeah. corrected that since then, and that's really when you started to see this. Do you think sentiment is bullish on Apple at this point? My goodness. I mean, I mean the stock no, now is it's, it's almost not. back to a trillion dollars in market cap. Yeah, so it's, no. You I, feel like there's been an analyst drumbeat since they released all those services uh, the certain, 10 days ago I thought whatever. we sat here that day saying Apple TV's a oh, dud. There's no I, services. I Actually, it's all about you know, fixing the screens community. on phones. Look, because I think people have been defensive and looking for places to hide and, and aren't interested in chasing Amazon and the ultra cyclicals. I think Apple I don't, at 13 times X cash is very defensible here. I don't um, agree and I think people reacted on the way down. I, I don't think they're going there for the defensive side. I think people have finally bought into the idea. And you've talked about it. I've talked about it forever. About services. Services and wearables really? and AI and all the different other areas that Apple is. And as they strip out, and they're not going to be as transparent as everybody would like. But as they come back from that... Take a look at where the margins growth is going to come from, right? Those other areas. Where's the real growth coming from? Those other areas. And I think people are finally accepting that, you know what? Maybe there were peak iPhone sales. But if they are growing in the other areas, that really could propel the stock higher. All right. Well, our next guest says this rally is heading for a screeching halt, but the pain will be temporary. Let's bring in Joe Zidel, Blackstone's chief investment strategist. Joe, it's always great to have you back. Jay-Z. Thanks for having me on. Jay-Z, a.k.a. Jay-Z. Happy to see you guys. Thank um, you. So earnings, earnings will be the temporary halt to this rally. Why? I think that's right. And I think we're about to enter this tug of war where so far, you know, markets have been propelled by central bank liquidity, you know, easing conditions from, you know, the ECB, the Fed turning very dovish, uh, China's central bank, et cetera. But on the other side of that, and I think this is the wall that we're going to run into, we're suffering from really slow earnings growth right now. And it's about to become apparent now that first quarter earnings season is beginning. And basically, you're going from 20% EPS growth in 2018 to, you know, maybe less than 5% EPS growth for large cap companies and small caps are being hit a lot harder. And so I think that is going to create this tug of war 
where you know the gains that we've seen year to date, I think they're going to be very hard to repeat. I wouldn't be surprised to see the markets trade sideways or maybe even down. But the silver lining here is I don't think it's the end of the bull market. I think this is just more like a, a mid to late cycle pause because I think we'll have enough time to see earnings recover. But what people are going to have to start pricing in now is an environment where you know, we're looking at, at single digit or less earnings growth. Wow. Um, in terms, your year-end your, your target, by the way, is 28.75, so it's a, it's a modest increase from here. Um, in terms of, in addition to earnings, you know, when you're taking a look at central bank easing around the world, do you feel like we're at a point now where the markets have fully priced that in? They fully priced in this pivot from the Fed. They fully priced in China. And I'm thinking specifically of the, of the Chinese stimulus that was released over the weekend and on Monday, and there's very re- little reaction in the Chinese markets and right. in these markets to the additional stimulus. So that sort of begs the question, have we become used to this? Is it all, all in there? I think a lot of that's priced in. The Shanghai index being up over 30% year to date, the S&P being up over 15% year to date. It was based on the notion that we would swing from tightening to easing conditions. I think uh, another positive factor, which we shouldn't overlook, is that all that liquidity and easing is going to start translating to the real economy. So we are starting to see data improve, not only out of China, we're starting to see uh, you know, improving data here in the U.S., but even more broadly, like emerging markets just beyond China, the PMIs in emerging markets, the, you know, which is a leading indicator, are now higher than developed markets. So I think there is an economic uh, story here that we shouldn't overlook. But again, this short-term tug-of-war is going to be dictated by all this good news on the economic side versus what we're seeing in the profit cycle, which is just due to slow down, given the fact that we are at, you know, uh, 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 2017 saw 10% EPS growth, 2018 saw 20% EPS growth, and now, you know, those comps are incredibly difficult. So if you're talking about low single-digit percentage EPS growth, that must be revenue growth of like 1% or 2%. But don't you think that the investors are going to say it's not what did you earn for the March quarter? It's really more they're going to be looking at the guidance and what are you seeing? And if they're optimistic about that, or do you saying they think there'll be a pause in that guidance? Even? I think I think we could, because let's say, you know, first quarter earnings right now are projected to be down maybe four percent year over year. It doesn't mean that earnings are actually going to be down four percent, because historically, the first quarter companies beat by a little over four percent. So let's just say companies beat the way they normally do, and maybe earnings growth comes out flat for the first quarter, like around zero. If the dollar holds where it is right now, it means second quarter earnings are going to be facing a very strong dollar, and that's a headwind to profits, which means second quarter earnings could be pretty difficult as well. But then third and fourth quarter earnings ought to start showing improvement. That's why I'm labeling this a little bit more of a pause. And what happens normally is you've got a profit cycle that works at one speed and an economic cycle that works at another. Sometimes they line up, and you get a profits recession at the same time as an economic recession, but they don't always. And I think we're in one of these situations where profits are going to be working at a different speed than the economy. I think we go through a soft patch in profits, but then in the third and fourth quarter of this year, or 2020, we get a profits recovery. Meanwhile, I think the economy remains steady and things actually improve. So that's why I would take volatility and use it as an opportunity to be bullish. Last good question. Why should investors stay invested in the markets right now, given your price target? Because I think 12 months from now, equity prices are going to be higher than they are today. There's two things that drive, um, that drive, uh, corporate pro- that, that drive valuation, earnings and interest rates. And the interest rate picture got a lot better for companies when the 10-year went from 3.25% to 2.5%. Their funding costs have gone way down, and I think that benefits valuations. All right. Joe, great to see you. Thank you. Joe Zidal of Blackstone. Me. 
All right, Dan, what do you think? Uh, listen, I think it all sounds really reasonable. My view for some time now is that the S&P in particular is trading between this 2600 and 2930 or whatever range. And I think the likelihood of breaking out after we've just run 23% in three months or so is very unlikely. I just want to make one point that Mike Wilson's been making for a long time. With rates down like that, companies are more likely to manage this earnings recession by buying back more stock. And that could be at the expense of CapEx. And that's when you see this earnings cycle maybe possibly starting to feed into the economic cycle, which could lead to a period of malaise, especially as the market is very range bound. And then you are subject to the sorts of shocks that we had in 2018. We had a January, February down 12 percent and we had a Q4 down 20 some percent. I don't think there's anybody here on this desk that thinks that the expectations for second quarter guidance or for first quarter and guidance for the end of the year is going to be positive. Therefore, to me, you know, right now the pain trade is higher. And ultimately, Joe brings up a good point in terms of the dollar. Um, Year over year, dollars up 8 percent. But, but sequentially, the dollar's done absolutely nothing for six months. The do- if the dollar stays here and rates stay here, this market is going to stay here. And if anything, the risk is to the upside. All right. Coming up, check out shares of Levi's, the company reporting its first earnings report since going public just moments uh, going public a few weeks ago, reported earnings moments ago. We'll give you all the details. And speaking of IPOs, the Dean Evaluation is here to tell us what the biggest tech unicorns are really worth. And later, a year ago this week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said, I'm sorry to the world. And since then, it's been a rocky road for the social media giant. But is the worst finally over? We've got all the details. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money Time for the call of the day. U.S. deal missing the mark today. That is as Credit Suisse downgraded the stock from a neutral to an underperform. The firm warning of competition increasing and a sheet tsunami ahead. Those are the words of the bank. The stock tanking 10% having its worst day since the beginning of August. Shares are down a whopping 50% from their highs. So how much worse could it get for U.S. deal? By the way, we saw all the steel stocks across the board, AK, Nucor, Steel Dynamics, all down because the broader call is that there's going to be a ramp in production for this for these hot rolled coil sheets. Ramp in production, and, and certainly if you look at HRC prices, they, you know, six months ago they were near all-time highs. So you know, the, the, the fortunes for the entire industry have changed. By the way, coincidence that this is really when the steel tariff discussion started happening, really March of last year, these companies were in a very different place, 46 bucks on U.S. steel. Um, look, I give Credit Suisse credit for getting out there on an aggressive call, because it, at, at 13 bucks a share, um, J.P. Morgan's at $31 a share. Um, and and you know, there's an argument here that despite what's going on and we fresh talk of auto tariffs possibly coming in, um, the reality is that the, the, the 
capacity utilization in the sector is actually pretty darn healthy. Prices are pretty darn healthy. Um, but the argument here is that there's going to be a flood of steel coming onto the market, and that's fair. Certainly, we can see prices overshoot. I like the stock. I'm long the stock probably you know, 25% higher, uh, and I think it's interesting to own it here. So you're not concerned about the capacity utilization? I mean, I, to me, this is like, you know, for a cyclical capacity utilization, you just got to price it to your variable cost, and that's when you really see a bear. Uh, you know, look, if these guys earn... Uh, a billion and a half in EBITDA. Credit Suisse says they're going to earn about a billion. So, I mean, again, there's disparity out there. On valuation, EV EBITDA, this, this is a stock that I think, you know, somewhere around three and a half times now looks very attractive. Even if you believe there's going to be a production, a, a glut or, you know, a lot of supply coming onto the market, what happens when, the ter- when all the tariffs are lifted? Let's say that day comes. But you still have this glut. What, what happens to these stocks? Look, uh, to me, tariffs are not a good thing. And we've seen this. We saw this with the Bush tariffs. We've right. seen this. I mean, it's, it's been a death knell for steel companies. We have to get rid of them. They so will they trade come better. Off and, it's and in the price. Should, oh. Yes. I, I, look, I, I believe a, a normalized steel market, which is one where Korea could be dumping steel and China could be dumping steel, is something that U.S. Steel was dealing with at 45 bucks a share. You know, I... I, I what I don't like is the situation where we're sitting here and we're talking about the idea that, you know, potentially this could happen because what we're seeing in front of us is exactly what's happening. We're talking about potential glut, right? I mean, we're talking about just so I'd rather stay away from that right now. I think I think there are other places in the metals space that I like a little bit better right now. Timmy, I know, has been around copper forever. Mm-hmm. Freeport today had some huge call buying going on in there. I jumped in that towards the end of the day. I'd rather be in those names than the steel names, though, right now, Mel, just because of how I see things going on, whether it's tariffs or this glut that we're seeing coming on the market. All right. For more on U.S. Steel and the other big analyst calls of the day, go to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. What is wrong with you? That's the exact question investors are asking about the big banks. The stocks are struggling with earnings just around the corner. But the chairwoman says there's something everyone is getting wrong about the group. Plus, we didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. It was one year ago that Mark Zuckerberg went to D.C. to say sorry. But is the worst really over for the social media giant? We've got those details. There's much more Fast Money right after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EdenVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. 
Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Levi Strauss higher after its first earnings report since going public March 21st. And since their first earnings report, we don't have analyst estimates to go off of, but the jeans retailer has provided year-on-year revenue data, which is strong. They have affirmed annual guidance. The stock trading about $5 over its IPO price of 17 bucks a share. The company's conference call is still underway as we speak, but the CEO says the company is entering a new chapter with a business that is stronger, diversified uh, than it's been in decades, and they have seen momentum continued across every part of the business. Karen, should we extrapolate from Yeah, I, I, hopefully you can. I mean, the revenue growth was very good. Consequent was it was even better. They do are they are around the world. Here's the thing that's interesting to me. You know, it's very it's very nerve-wracking to have a new company, a company IPO and then you wait for their first earnings and you always think, "Well, why would they why would they IPO and then come out with bad earnings?" They don't always they're not always in control of it. You know, you don't know how long it's going to take to get right. an IPO done. You don't know what the markets are going to be. You can't really time it. And sometimes you just end up with a crap quarter, coincident with your coming public. So good for them. It is much better to start off on a positive note. I think it's interesting here. I mean, it's a, you know, an enduring brand. I, I think it's interesting. Can I ask yeah, go ahead. a question, though, Karen? Because, I mean, it's an apparel company that you know, is trading 22, 23 times earnings. Um, they say they've never seen a more diversified business, but at the end of the day, it's a jeans company. I mean, should we be paying a premium for this company? Well, it's a jeans company that actually is experiencing tremendous growth, right? You'd think, no, how it's a state brand and it's really not growing, but it is. So, I don't know. I actually think it's interesting. Dan, you wear a lot of jeans. Well, I was going to say, this is the consumer. Is that a jean shirt? Seriously. Is that a jean shirt? This is the consumer staple of apparel, if you think about it, okay? And why do all these consumer staple companies trade at a premium? Why does uh, Procter & Gamble trade at 24 times single-digit growth? Because it's a staple. Levi's should have that sort of premium. Or is it more like a Starbucks? I don't know. You just stumped me. Is that a jean shirt? (laughs) Seriously. No, it's, it's hemp. It's rag and bone, baby. Sorry. Or linen, or I don't know, some yeah. other fiber. Uh, for more on Levi Strauss's first earnings since our IPO, you can catch CEO Chip Berg in an exclusive interview that's tomorrow on Squawk Alley. Well, in the midst of IPO mania, it is hard to tell just how much these big IPOs are really worth, so we thought we'd bring in the dean of valuation, Aswat Damodaran. He is a finance professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Professor, welcome back. It's good to see you in person. Good to have you on campus, too. Well, glad to be back. <laughs> so let's let's start off with Lyft, since we're seeing Lyft trade below its IPO price, and there's a lot of hand-wringing, especially going into the Uber uh, IPO. What is Lyft valued at? What should it be valued at? My estimate, and, and I'm bending every single rule to breaking point, is I get to about 15 or $16 billion. I mean, you got a business that lost a billion last year, hasn't figured out how to make money yet. I mean, the business model is broken right now across the board on ride sharing. So getting to 15 billion was a stretch for me. Getting to 25 billion is way beyond stretching, at least as, as I see the company. Okay, so this is $59 a share, which is considerably lower. Should we extrapolate, when you do these valuations, should we extrapolate to Uber? Because a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, should I apply the same sort of multiple to Uber? But it's a different business. Well, it's a pricing game. Unfortunately, in a pricing game, you get tarred with whoever you're lumped up with. And (laughs) Uber's watching Lyft like, I mean, this is what's going to drive whether Uber goes public at 80, 100, or 125 billion. So I think Uber's watching this pricing because no matter what their difference is, investors are going to price Uber based on what Lyft is priced. Is there a typical uh, either a premium or discount to your valuations versus what a share will price at? In other words, is there an embedded bias to the upside in terms of valuations when a company goes public? 
I think the younger and less established a company is, the more the premiums tend to be because people build whatever stories they want into the companies. They have a selection not, bias. These are not new kids on the block, though. Lyft, are we talking Uber. about Lyft or Levi Strauss? Oh, no, no. Lyft, Lyft, Lyft is new in a sense. It's, as a business, it's new. We really don't understand how the ride-sharing business is going to evolve. Okay. I mean, this is not the old car service business. So in it's fact, not just the number of years it's been in business exactly. or, or whatnot? No, it's, I think it's still very young as a business. And as I said, none of these companies have figured out how to make money on this business yet. Right. Levi Strauss, what is that worth? I have it at uh, about $28 per share. I mean, I really like the company. I know it's just an apparel company, but I still love my 501s. I mean, there's something about this brand name. I'll, t I'll make a bet that Levi Strauss is still going to be around when Lululemon and Under Armour are forgotten. It's a brand really? name that's been around 150 years. It's got, I mean, it's got that going for it. And I think it has potential, especially in Asia, where they haven't grown as much yet. And if they can leverage their brand name, I think they can get the growth and maintain their margins. Professor, you're talking about the profitability of these unicorns. And, and we've seen unicorns come through that haven't made money for a long time. And we talk on this desk yeah. all the time. I mean, Netflix, to me, still doesn't make money. Yeah. So um, how do you reconcile this? Obviously, Netflix is, is a very successful, proven company. Right. I think there are unicorns where there's light at the end of the tunnel and unicorns where there isn't. I think Netflix, there is light at the end of the tunnel. If they can figure out a way to bring that content cost under control, their subscriber base is large enough and growing fast enough that the economies of scale are going to kick in. Mm -hmm. When I say that Lyft is not making money, it's not just that they're not making money, but there is no pathway right now, given how they're operating, to actually make money. The economies of scale are not kicking in because what allowed them to grow so fast is actually getting in the way of them making money. They scaled up fast because they had no capital investment, and they got in with, I mean, everybody's a free agent in this business. The drivers are free agents, the customers are free agents. There's absolutely no stickiness in the business. And they know it. I mean, they're throwing everything at the wall and hoping something sticks. But that's the basic problem I have with all the ride-sharing companies, and not just with Lyft. With all these companies, they haven't figured out how to make this. Even Guy Adami wouldn't keep it, didn't keep his job there. No. So let me ask you, for your 59, how did you get there? Did you have somewhere in your DCF model they break even? Uh, in a sense, there's almost this mystic belief that somewhere, <laughs> somewhere along the way, because what they've succeeded at is changing the way we use car service. I have Uber and Lyft on my phone, and I never take a cab. So in that part of the game, they've succeeded. What they haven't figured out is how to make me stay with them, right? Because I'm completely disloyal here. I try both, and whichever's cheaper, I switch. And if there was a third service, I'll go to the third service. There's nothing in this model that keeps me stuck with a particular user. And the same thing with drivers. They can't keep them as Lyft drivers because Uber gets them away. This, this model needs some stickiness, something to keep customers and drivers attached to a service. Somewhere along the way, there, I'm, you know, the, the business model has to be worked out because otherwise we're going to end up with car service with companies which can't make money. So that's why I said the 15 billion is a stretch because if they don't figure that out, we're going to be in big trouble. Uh, Professor, so obviously your model is quantitative based, but from a qualitative standpoint, if you compare Lyft to, let's say, Uber, who just paid $3 billion for a company that does rideshare in the Middle East where it's going to have very different economics, right? Probably worse margins than we have here. They've got Uber Eats. they got all this other stuff. Are they throwing tons of stuff against a ton of different walls rather than just yeah. one where it is Lyft? And is there more risk to Uber? Than in fact, if you ask me to pick between the companies, I'd take Lyft over Uber because Uber wants to be all things to all people. 
And you'd think they'd learn from their mistakes. They went into China, backed out of China. They went to Southeast Asia, backed out of Southeast Asia. I think it's only a matter of time before they back out of India because they're losing enough money there that they need to get out to start to save themselves cash. So I think being less ambitious in this business until you figure out a business model that works is better. And Lyft from that perspective has been less ambitious. It's US-based, it's car service. Once you figure that out, then you can try to do other stuff. Last quick question. We didn't ask about Pinterest. Have you done a valuation on Pinterest? I mean, it's on the road now. A very preliminary valuation. And I'd say the same thing about Pinterest that I said about Snap. Keep it small. Don't go after the big market because Facebook, you don't want to go up against Facebook and Google head to head. You want to create a niche and you want to be in that niche, which means you've got to be less ambitious rather than more ambitious. But I think that the mistake that Snap made, which Pinterest should not, is they thought they could be the next Facebook. They thought they could be bigger than they really could be. And I think as long as, and I think what the signals you're getting from Pinterest is it's less ambitious. It's not trying to be all things to all people. Okay. Professor, thank you. Thank you. Professor Aswath Damodaran of NYU. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, I mean, the, the advice to Pinterest is interesting, yeah. especially when you think about Instagram's buy buttons and the ability yeah. to also monetize that. Listen, in the they have the way. same risk, just like Instagram uh, came right at Snap, right, right around their IPO. But I'll tell you that I think the last point he made is really interesting. This round of IPOs, these unicorns, they don't have the cult of the founder really overriding these things. The Lyft guys were really understated. Ben Silverman at Pinterest had kind of understated. You're not making this huge bet. There was a there was an Evan Spiegel. There was an Evan Spiegel, uh, Spiegel premium in Snap when that came out a couple years ago. You don't have that in these names right now. All right, coming up, the Boeing dragging. Down the industrials today its deliveries and orders of its jet of its 737 jets plummet in the first quarter one of the traders says this is just the tip of the iceberg we will explain plus a big week for the banks the ceos from those companies get grilled on the hill and the group gears up for earnings karen says there's something about those stocks that wall street is getting all wrong she will explain when fast money returns Breaking news out of Washington, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin just left a hearing on the Hill on the administration's international financial policy. Elon Moy is there tracking the Treasury Secretary. Elon. Melissa, he has been on the Hill all day long. He ended that marathon day of testimony with a heated exchange with House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters. Now, this exchange was not about Trump's tax cuts or about uh, Trump's tax returns or about tax cuts or even about trade. It was about what time he was supposed to leave. What I've told you is I thought it was respectful that you'd let me leave at 515. You are free to leave any time you want. You may go any time you want. Please dismiss everybody. I believe you're supposed to take the gravel and, and bang it. That's Please do not instruct me as to how I'm to conduct this committee. Well, Mnuchin said that he was late for a bilateral meeting with Bahrain, and that would be embarrassing to America. He withdrew his offer to return to the committee to continue his testimony. He got sort of hot and flustered and red uh, during that uh, exchange that you saw just there. Uh, but I think the takeaway here is just how grueling it can be in the hot seat for uh, whoever is testifying before the committee. And also, it shows just how strong of a hand Chairwoman Waters has as she runs her committee. And that's going to be really important 
for tomorrow's hearing with those big bank CEOs. They could take a lesson from what happened today. Yep. Uh, perfect segue, Elon. Thank you, Elon Moy, on Capitol Hill. Well, as Elon had mentioned, it could be make or break week for the banks as the CEOs get ready to go in front of the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow, of course, of which Maxine Waters is the chairwoman. Uh, before J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo kick off earnings season for the group on Friday, J.P. Morgan is putting even more pressure on the group with a note this morning cutting price targets for many of the banks. But Karen here says all of Wall Street's worries about the group are misguided. So, Karen, why don't you head over to the yep. plasma and give us your fine print on the financials. Okay, so as we know, they're all on the hot seat tomorrow. And a lot of times we've seen industries or CEOs specifically on the hot seat, and that is the bottom for the stock. Think about Mark Zuckerberg last year. But here's my bull case for banks, and we're going to start to see them. J.P. Morgan reports on Friday, so I focus mostly on J.P. Morgan. A few reasons. Follow the money. And what this what means is what people aren't understanding about banks is they keep focusing on the net interest margin, how much pressure there is from rates being low. But banks actually make only half of their money from the net interest margin. The rest is from other revenue, which is things like investment banking or markets activity or asset wealth management or credit cards. So there's a lot of other places to make money. And I think the street is undervaluing how much of their revenue comes from those other businesses. The next point is that earnings concerns should be priced in. J.P. Morgan themselves said in their 10-K that their first quarter is going to be basically disappointed. They talked about markets revenue being down a lot. They talked about that interest income being flat. They talked about expenses being up. So that should already be priced in. And actually, I think that markets revenue has picked up since they filed that 10-K, which was at the end of February. And the last one is cheap valuations. So I look at these stocks relative to the market, and they always trade cheap relative to the S&P, but I also look at them relative to themselves. So let's take a look at J.P. Morgan, for example. We're going to look at, here's the P.E., and here the stock topped out right over here, around just under 120. And the P.E. at that time was about 13.14. But now the P.E. is about just under 11. To me, that's way too cheap, and that's where I think the value is. So Friday, I think we're going to see not terrific earnings, but I also think that the stock should have fully priced that in. This is as cheap as it's been for a while. And for me, the last reason that I love J.P. Morgan is, of course, you know, the best CEO out there. (laughs) Uh. <laughs> Dan has a question. You know what? You actually yeah. preempted my question. I said, I think you're speaking to an audience of one, and then you just pull up the picture, and his name is Jamie Dimon here. I mean, I my don't goodness. Think, I think he knows what he's going to earn on Friday. All right, but I can, I, can I ask you a quick question, though? Sure. I mean, you know, you could have made this same argument um, in front of every earnings season over the last, let's say, three, four, five quarters. What will be the catalyst for investors to wake up finally and say that these banks are too cheap? I think, look, I'm a way long-term investor. I actually today just looked at my holding period just to see. And the oldest stock I own is actually seven years. So over time, they've continued to build value. Sometimes it's recognized, sometimes it isn't. You're going to have a year like 2016 where it's up huge. Last year wasn't good. I think they just build value over time, and they buy back stock, and they pay dividends. I don't know that there'll be a reckoning one day and they wake up and see value. I just want to build it over time, and they've done it. All right. Thanks for that, Karen, the chairwoman. Sure. Coming up, Saving Face shares of the social giant up around 12% since CEO Mark Zuckerberg got blasted on the hill last year for the company's privacy problems. Should you trust the Facebook rally? Plus, Boeing sinking today and taking the industrials down with it. And one of the traders says this is just the beginning of a bigger sell-off. He will explain when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. It's officially been one year since Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg sat in the hot seat on Capitol Hill to defend the social media giant's privacy and security woes. For more, let's get to Julia Borson in Los Angeles. Julia. Thanks, Melissa. Well, after making a number of changes over the past year, Mark Zuckerberg has a challenging year ahead as he works to avoid landing back in the hot seat on Capitol Hill. And he's facing a particularly precarious juggle. The company is under broad regulatory scrutiny. It's currently facing charges from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating Facebook for violating its commitment to protect users' privacy, and it's expected to levy record fines. Facebook is also under investigation by the DOJ, the FBI, and the SEC. Plus, there are calls from both sides of the aisle in Congress to enact privacy legislation ahead of a California privacy law going into effect next year. Now, just today, Senators Mark Warner and Deb Fischer introduced a bill to ban deceptive practices used by Facebook to get user data. And also today, Facebook sent an executive to testify on harmful content at a House committee hearing on white nationalism. Now, while Zuckerberg deals with the cost and distraction of this scrutiny and potential regulation, he's also trying to execute yet another shift to his company's business model. Zuckerberg announcing last month a new focus on secure private messaging, enabling people to easily communicate across Facebook's platforms. That includes Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram. The challenge is that there's no real business model around messaging just yet. But it is worth noting, Melissa, that today is the seven-year anniversary of Facebook buying Instagram. Its co-founders left Facebook last year. Still, Facebook shares are still up about 12% over the past year. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. So is all the bad news pricing for Facebook? Could there be more downside ahead? Karen, what do you think? I don't know. I w- we were talking in the green room before. I think I'd actually like to see some regulations. I think that would make it easier for Facebook and for Google to comply. And if they were able to do that, that removes some of the uncertainty. People don't know how to, fi- how to price Facebook because they don't know what the revenue model is going to look like. And I think that, actually, I think it would be a positive. And I think that also uh, that Facebook being the poster child for bad behavior is fading a little bit. Now that is spread over many more <laughs> poster children. So um, I, I'm long. I like it here. Stay I long. think it's fading as well. And we continue to, it, it hasn't stopped. I mean, that's the one negative. But the reactions are just like the president with his tweet, tweets. I've owned this stock for over a year. I sell calls against it every single month because there's great premiums there. It gives you an opportunity. You're kind of creating your own dividend stream on top of a company where I look at it and I see Instagram. And I think, and I've read this time and time again, Instagram over the next couple of years is going to contribute about 30% to the revenues of this company. People are all still looking at Facebook and it's not Facebook. It's like Apple looking at the phone. It's not just the phone. I think Facebook is the same. These other verticals, whether it's WhatsApp and Messenger and all the rest of it, Instagram, I think they're going to figure out ways, and I think it's proven over time that they've done a good job, figuring out ways that they can monetize these different verticals that they're in. Mm-hmm. The monetization on Instagram in terms of commerce right. is interesting to move up because that, in That's, effect, diversifies yeah. their revenue stream, yes. right, away from ads and away from sort of the data-driven part of the business. Look, the, 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 the announcement uh, a week and a half ago, I, I think, was very exciting for people looking to unleak, unlock the value that Pete's talking about. I, I don't think anyone's ever questioned that Instagram is an undervalued component of the valuation, some of the parts, you name it. So, um, I, you know, I, I think Facebook has done as good of a job as they can do at this point of getting out there and trying to be accountable. And in fact, as Karen said, I mean, they've kind of thrown themselves at regulators and say, give us something. Uh, and that at some point, you know, to me, I don't think the stock needs to trade at a premium. You know, I think that. Um, I think around 185, the stock's 
stocks rallied 50 percent off the bottom, and a lot of great news has been priced back. I, what I think is really interesting about Zuckerberg and, and uh, Sheryl Sandberg asking for regulation is I think they know that it strengthens their moat against competition. It really will stifle oh. innovation, and it makes it that much harder for anyone to compete with them. So to me, I actually think they're playing a hand that they actually know how it's going to you know, go. And so to me, um, I don't think anybody is that quick to put like dumb regulations on this industry that's going to continue to grow one way or another. And regulation only strengthens, I think, the incumbents. Coming up, industrials, the worst performing sector today. There's something in the charts that points to an even bigger breakdown. We will explain right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another bad day for Boeing as their first quarter order in deliveries missed the mark, largely due to ongoing issues with the 737 MAX and American Airlines trimmed its guidance due to the fallout of its global grounding, the move dragging down the entire industrial space today. Dan is over at the plaza, says this could be just the tip of the iceberg of a bigger sell-off for the entire space, the industrial space. Dan, what's the action? Yeah, so Mel, looking at the XLI, that's the ETF that tracks the industrial space, which Boeing is the largest component, over 9% of the weight. Um, and today it was kind of interesting. There was vol buyers. They were buying volatility in the XLI, playing for movement between now and May 3rd expiration. There was a buyer of the May 3rd 76 uh, strike straddle. That's buying the call premium and the put premium. When you put that together, you're basically buying the implied movement between now and May 3rd. And so that straddle cost $2.40. That trader is making a bet that the XLI will be at least um, above 78.40 or below 73.60 on May 3rd expiration. They're playing for movement about 3% in either direction. And why would a trader be doing that? Well, again, Boeing has been very volatile. It's the biggest component in the group. It's still up 15% of the year. The XLI is up 20% on the year, besting the uh, 15% gains in the uh, S&P 500. We think about this. We know that Boeing is going to give guidance when they report Q1 on April. April 24th, and we're going to get some other earnings from some other large components in the XLI um, over the next few weeks. I just want to go to the charts real quickly here. Look at this thing. It's been rejected um, a couple times at 76.50. Just again, right there. That looks to be some short-term technical resistance. And just taking a quick look at the five-year, it never made a new high here. It's been in a downtrend since its all-time highs in January. It obviously has some support down at the $70 level. But I think it's important to remember that this ETF went down 20 bucks in a straight line from about 80 to 60 in the Q4 downdraft. So material guide down from Boeing, if we hear it straight from the horse's mouth, will affect the XLI here. And obviously the push out of any trade deals could be um, a headwind to this group. So to me, I don't like the XLI here. I think it's done pretty well year to date. I just think that there's some issues here that could take it down in the near term. Pete, what'd you make of the action? I think the implied volatilities of the XLI give you an opportunity to be able to place stocks like Caterpillar, like Boeing specifically, because you look at that incredible volatility that's there. This gives you a chance to try to play that in a different way because the exposure levels of Boeing, Caterpillar, and some of the other names. All right. For more options, action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 530 Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Trade, Pete Mel, I got to agree with the professor who was sitting here just a little while ago. Levi, this is too cheap. They've got great margins that are going higher and higher. This is a company to own. Giddy up. Tim Seymour. A lot of talk about banks today. What's been bad for the banks, is, I think, is very good for home improvement. That's Home Depot. It's been on a nice little tear, but I think this chart still looks interesting. You mean with rates lower? Yes. Yeah. 
I can't declare. Karen Feinerman. Yes. Well, if it's good enough for the plasma, it's good enough for the final trade as well. I'm long all of them going into earnings, but my favorite, the cream of the crop, is J.P. Morgan. We'll see yes. Friday morning, 8:30. Are you going to say something? Yeah. I mean, yeah, literally, that's, that's the one. cheapest thing. She is talking to an audience of one. She's got J.P. Morgan chart up there. We know. We know. Is that a jean shirt? Yeah. No, it's it's him. Dan. Um, you know, listen, with that XLI, he, he was talking about the volatility that's in this group. Nice. Those options really are cheap. I think that's why traders are focused there. But if you want to pick a direction, they're even cheaper there. XLI, sell it. No offense to Canadians, by yeah. the way. Well, be back here tomorrow, five more fast. Mad Money starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.